I think we were at a stage, and we still are, the truth of it is, where the consumer still really doesn't know or isn't educated on the product. In other words, a lot of people still don't know that a service like ours is out there. When we were developing it, we definitely thought, I mean, it was an organic idea for us. It took us a while until we discovered that there's a couple competitors and one in development at the time, and then more came along. But there's overwhelmingly, I think most customers aren't really familiar with it. They need to be talked about it, what it is. And so that takes some time. I mean, we're still in that phase of educating consumers that there's an option between completely doing it on your own and an attorney that they may or may not be able to afford, they may or may not need. And so we kind of fill that, that giant chasm in between. Hey everybody, welcome to the GMI Rocket Show. Today is episode number 60. I'm really excited for our guest today, Russ Limer, who is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Citizen Path. And Citizen Path effectively helps individuals who are looking to apply for some immigration benefits to go through, get some information online and then go through filling out the forms and printing them out and, and that whole process through an online platform. So, you know, it is helping individuals find kind of a, I mean, I hate to use the word DIY, but it's, you know, this kind of more streamlined solution for immigration benefits. It's a really hot topic. You know, there are some companies doing this stuff. And I, I love the direction that companies like Citizen Path are taking the immigration technology space, as hopefully you all know. So I'm really excited to talk to Russ today about this, about what he's built and sort of how he came across uh, this, this problem, I guess, this idea to build it. Um, and sort of where the company is today and where it's going. I'm your host, Roman Zalchenko. I am a former immigration lawyer myself and now the founder of Laborless, which is an immigration tech startup that automates H-1B visa compliance, and also the founder of GMI Rocket, which brings you this show and is a digital marketing agency for the immigration and global mobility industry. So without further ado, Russ, thank you so much for, for being here and for joining. And I'm really excited to dig into your story. Yeah, thanks for having me, Roman. It's good to see you again. Yeah, likewise. So Russ, you know, I always love to dig into or dive into the the guest's kind of backstory. We'll obviously get to how you launched Citizen Path and what the company does, you know, now, what your kind of growth trajectory is or where you're looking towards the future. Um, but let's dive into first, who is Russ? Uh, you have this really interesting background you know, you're, you're not coming from the immigration law space per se, right? You have a really varied kind of entrepreneurial background, which I think is really, really exciting. This is not your first business. And I think it's going to be cool to see kind of where some of the things you've worked on in the past, you know, how they've connected to what you're working on today. So I know you said you're, you're, you're based in Fullerton, California now. Is, is that where you're originally from? Are you from sort of the West Coast? I was born in Iowa, but Quickly, you know, my parents moved me at the age of one. So I'm, you know, essentially a Southern California kid and have been raised in the Southern California area, a few different towns. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, my family, I moved to New York when I was two and a half from the Ukraine. So we did move internationally. But yeah, I don't have any memories of anywhere else but New York City. That's cool. How is it? I don't know. What's it? I'm from New York, right? So what is it like growing up in, in Southern California? I imagine it's like, TV where you go to the beach every day, everyone's sun-kissed, everyone's surfing or like doing stuff outside. Is it, is that, is there any truth in that? Well, that's mostly fantasy, but I do have to admit it's, it's 93 degrees out today. So wow. <laughs> the, the weather's definitely a benefit, right? Yeah. I mean, not having to deal with all of the weather that the other side of the country has to deal with every winter and spring. So it's, it's certainly easier in that respect. When you were a kid, you know, were you what, like, did you go out? Like, is it like a sports thing? Is it, you know, what, what kind of kid were you, I guess? Oh, I was active. I mean, yeah, yeah I, I played a couple different sports, soccer and football and basketball. But I was definitely into boy things like reptiles and, and riding BMX bikes and, and doing all that sort of stuff. So I love to ask, were you kind of the, you know, lemonade stand 
kid, you know, like were you selling or selling basketball cards or lemonade or fixing to you know, people's toys for yeah. money? Yeah. I don't know if I ever did the lemonade stand, but I definitely had a, a pretty good car wash business. Oh really? Um, you know, shaking down the local neighbors for a a car wash and says that was probably my first taste of going out and earning money from other people, you know, other than my parents. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, that, that definitely taught me how to interact with people. And, you know, each customer is a little bit different, has different expectations about, um, you know, just how detailed your car is after a $5 car wash. You know, some people would be, um, you know, pretty easy going about it, but others, really have some high expectations for a $5 car wash. How old were you? Oh, man. I mean, probably anywhere between, you know, 10 and 12 when I got started with that. Wow. So so you so you had some difficult customers who came up to a 10-year-old and would basically say, hey, kid, the car is still dirty. I want my money's worth. Yep. Wow. <laughs> well, you know, you, you know, customers have their, their particular spot that they're looking at, you know, right under the fender where they don't like to see any dirt. So you, yeah. you've got to pay attention to that and learn and incorporate it into your your check system. And like, I mean, amazing, right? Because if you're a kid and you have, you know, somebody yelling about under the fender, probably, I mean, if you're, if you're intuiting this stuff, you'll probably look under the fender for, the, you know, when the next car comes around just to make sure it's clean. Now you're paying exactly. attention to this. Exactly, yeah, it's a learning experience. It's a, it's a great, it's like you're iterating, you know, a 10 year old car wash business, you're iterating and learning and, and sort of in, mm -hmm. you know, the, the business lessons you can pull from that are probably endless. So that's really cool. Um, okay. So, so 10 years old, you know, you're obviously in school, you're, you've got a car wash business, I suppose. I, I'm curious, did you have any friends helping you? Like, did you convince people to support you in this or was it you and a hose and a bucket and some soap? Yeah, I know I had a, a friend like a neighborhood kid that was helped help me. Um, but yeah, I think just one friend. It wasn't, it wasn't an enterprise with uh, franchises. Right. All right. It was a small business, small local business. Yep. Okay. So you, you, you obviously went to high school, I suppose in, in the area as well. Um, so, and then you went off to college, right. Um, and you went to college in California as well. Uh, yes and no. So I, I started at University of Arizona. Uh, that's where I started school. I just remember that, that kind of woke me up, I think, in terms of, okay, now I'm you know responsible for myself. I got to kind of carve my own path and decide where I'm going from here. Um, you know, my parents uh, got me this far. I was fortunate enough to, you know, have that opportunity. And um, I remember the first week, kind of the, um, you know, freshman introduction, going into an auditorium and, and uh, whoever it was explained to us that uh, he wanted us to write down our anticipated grade point average for the first semester. And so everybody wrote down their their GPA that they thought they would get. And then he said, yeah, you're probably going to get an entire point lower than that. Wow. And I thought that was a really crappy, you know, motivational speech. Um, and that, I mean, that's sort of the kind of thing that motivates me is when you say you can't do it. Uh, so I did very well that semester. I got straight A's. And there was just other factors, I think, there that helped me decide that uh, it wasn't the right school for me, for my situation. And, and and I was looking for, okay, once I graduate, what are the opportunities that the school provides in terms of jobs and you know, other opportunities? Um, and I really wasn't finding it. So I decided to transfer and transferred to UCLA, mm -hmm. uh, where it's all a trade-off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I did get some of those things and, and lost others. Did you move back home or you weren't, I guess your family wasn't in LA, so you did? You yeah, did. not really close enough to commute. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did live n near campus or on campus. Yeah. And and you, did you, did you end up finishing? Yeah. yeah. I graduated from UCLA with a degree in economics. Nice. Um, so it wasn't a business degree. And um, it was still a good experience, but 
economics is a lot of math and theory and it wasn't really what I wanted to sink my teeth into. Uh, so I did go get an MBA later. Um, I can't remember if that would be, I guess, roughly seven years later, um, which was, you know, more of what I was looking for. But I, I think I did that more. Uh, well, I know I did really as just an insurance policy. Um, I thought, uh, you know, I don't really need it, but I'm going to go back and get uh, a master's in, in business administration just to sort of ensure that I'll always have a job. And and I graduated in spring of 2001. Uh, so, so soon. So September hit and uh, a lot of things changed. Wow. That was you graduated from the MBA in 2001. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So I was I was working full time at a company called Avnet at that time. Also going to school. I want to dive into that for a second. So you, you graduated with an economics degree, which I did as well, by the way. Um, I studied financial economics. Also, I also wanted to do business. And uh, I probably would have succumbed to that like intro, you know, college speech, because I definitely did at least a great point worse than what I expected. <laughs> New York high school, New York City High School did not prepare me for college whatsoever. I eventually figured it out. But that first year was was a mess. And I tried to get into our business school, but my grades were too low. Um, and so I ended up, you know, staying in like the the liberal arts college and, and doing economics. But in hindsight, I really love that because I think the focus on math and the focus on the sort of theory behind, you know, micro macroeconomics was much more useful than learning about, you know, LIFO and FIFO. Like that stuff is just you memorize it or you don't. Yeah. Uh, whereas I think economic theory was much more philosophical and that so set up a different foundation. So in hindsight, I'm very happy about the econ degree. But I, I definitely feel you in terms of it's not exactly what I wanted. Um, you know, when I, when I went to college. So you, you started off, I know, working for, um, working in like in the electronic space, kind of in a product, I guess, sort of marketing business development role. I want to touch on that a little bit, because I think the first job is always kind of, you know, important. It's life changing for us as you know, young professionals. What do you remember about those days um, working first at, uh, what's the name? It's, uh, well, the, the company that, um, if anybody would actually recognize it as Avnet, it's a it's a Fortune 500 electronics distributor. Right. Um, so the the company within that corporation that I worked for at the time was Hamilton Hallmark. Hamilton Hallmark. And uh, I had gotten a an internship my senior year at UCLA, and was fortunate enough to get a job offer uh, from Hamilton Hallmark uh, at that time when I graduated. So that was a really good experience. I mean, I'm thankful for uh, sort of that big company experience to start with because there's a lot of uh, resources, um, you know, a lot of people around that have the experience. You're able to go do things, you know, go to a, a conference or, or, you know, just learn in different ways that you maybe wouldn't be able to in a smaller environment where the money's tighter. I thought it was a really good learning opportunity and I, I enjoyed my work there too. It was just, you know, interesting. Selling a lot of electronic semiconductors and things, it's kind of a cool space to be in. I like the point about working in a sort of a larger company, especially for somebody who eventually goes off to start their own business. I know a few people who kind of, I don't know if I want to use entrepreneurial route, but they kind of went from college to just working on their own. And I think that there are a lot of things you can learn working at a big company, you know, organizational skills, you know, or even organizing your folders on your computer. If you see how a you know larger corporate entity does it, it kind of gives you ideas of how to do it mm -hmm. as well. That seems like such a benign skill. Um, but if you've ever, a lot of people who don't have that experience, they just, they don't think about it, right? So they pop all the files in a disorganized way, and then it sort of compounds. And I don't know, I, I think things like that, those kind of little skills are, are really valuable to pick up at a first job, especially at a big um, at a big company. And then to your point, you know, resources maybe for training or for learning or things like that. Um, so, right, so, the, so Hamilton Hallmark was then, I guess, acquired or was a subsidiary of what became Avnet. Um, and I know you stayed there for probably, I think over a decade or about a decade in, in the industry. Yeah. Just, just about 10 years. Yeah. And, and then you were getting your marketing degree or your MBA rather, uh, were you expecting to sort of after your MBA to stay in the company? Were you thinking, you know, I want to start my own business. Maybe you want to get into technology. Cause it sounds like, 
when you graduated, it was just before the dot-com bubble burst. So I'm assuming that while you were in the M- in your MBA course, everyone was talking about, you know, right. the internet and all the companies coming out. So, I mean, I definitely had aspirations, thoughts of entrepreneurship, um, you know, while going to school. I don't feel like I had an idea at that time to really grasp onto and, and put some energy behind it. Um, but was definitely thinking along those lines. Uh, just, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't quite ready yet. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to ask you about the, your kind of your first entrepreneurial endeavor then. Um, so if, if, if I, my understanding is correct, you sort of joined this kind of phys- physical marketing company. I don't know how to say it because now I'm all, all I think about is digital marketing, but this is like print and flyers and ads and direct mail. Um, and if, you know, you, so you essentially kind of this company existed, is that right? And you sort of bought into it and became a like an owner or, or a co-founder. Well, there was an existing print printing company, you know, printing presses, things like that. Um, that I did decide to, um, with my wife's blessing, take out a second mortgage and and purchase. Uh, so it was a a legacy printing business that did have some existing business. Um, but it was 90% um, kind of mortgage real estate related business. Um, so what I wanted to do, you know, I, I felt like, uh, you know, being a printing business is sort of a commodity. Everybody's low bit, you know, trying to hit the, the best price and, and bid the lowest price on a print job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought it was important to be more than that and add some value to it and decided to integrate a little bit more vertically. So, the company did have some basic um, printing, excuse me, uh, mailing capabilities. Uh, so I invested more in the direct mailing side of the business, as well as on the front end, the, the creative services, uh, so that we could quickly bring in-house a job that required some creative services, setting up the artwork, the communication piece, printing it um, with the existing traditional presses, but also bringing in some digital presses that helped us turn things, um, uh, get them out quicker, and then uh, direct mail. Uh, so our target markets were things like healthcare, um, still the you know the mortgage and um, real estate uh, side of things, as well as um, hospitality, the hospitality business. So it was able to grow the business quite a bit in those other markets. Um, which was fortunate because the, you know, 2008, um, you know, hit to the real estate market really hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. And you bought into the business in around, two th- like, basically when you graduated from your MBA? A little bit later. Okay. Um, so about 2003. Got it. So that that's cool. So you vertically vertically integrated with existing clients. You also expanded the industries that you were serving, um, and and I guess I mean, and this I'm I'm sort of just basing it off of your LinkedIn profile. But I guess you were were you doing some other consulting work on the side, the more strategic side, as like um, a separate company, just a little bit, yes, yeah, yeah. So so I mean that's cool, right? Because you're 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 running a, your own business, especially one that has you know physical assets. I mean. You think about how easy it is to start a digital. Like you could be a freelancer today with just a laptop and an internet connection. Yeah. Um, you know, you were kind of you had a business where yes, there was that, but there was a lot of it that was based on a being in an, in a space and creating a physical product and sending that physical product to you know the, your customers. Um, so so which I think is is really cool. It's kind of nice to see both sides. I feel like, I mean, I personally. I mean, I guess I worked in a store when I was in high school and college, so I, you know, dealt with clothing. But you know, for the most part, since then, all my jobs have kind of been intellectual labor, right? I had to be in the office, but I didn't really have to be in the office. I could have done it from home. Um, I kind of wish I, like, I want to. I, I hope sometime in my life I get the experience of working somewhere <laughs> where I can like work on a thing. You know what I mean? So you, I guess you, you survived through the the financial crisis of two thousand eight, two thousand nine. How did that, I guess, impact the business? Um, well, yeah, we we were holding serve. We were we were okay, but um, I mean, I kind of reached a point where um, 
I recognized that having that type of business, which was basically a you know a manufacturing business, you really had to double down if you wanted to remain there. There was a lot of consolidation in printing. Uh, so my competitors were being bought up, bigger ones were getting stronger. Um, and to really thrive, you needed to have newer, nicer equipment that was more efficient and could, you know, print at a lower cost. Um, and I didn't love it enough to really want to recommit, you know, 20 years of my life and that financial investment um, into that industry. And it was getting tougher at that point. So, yeah, I decided to sell the business and um, was definitely rewarded more for my customers than for the equipment, because the equipment at that point, nobody really cared about. Yeah. It's worth pennies on the dollar. Um, it's really the customers that matter. Um. So that that's you know that's that's cool, and I I, I want to talk about that for a little bit if we can. I think you know the the I know before we kind of talked you know went live we we had this conversation, and I was curious about sort of you know when people hear about oh you sold a business, everyone just assumes that you then buy go ahead and you go buy your dream house and the yacht and you're right. good. Um, it's not always the case, but before we talk about that, I'm curious, uh, how do you, maybe you knew these people, but how do you find, you know, buyers? And, and I'm, I genuinely don't, don't know, right? I mean, I guess a hardware business or a software business versus a software business are different. I would call what you did sort of, I, I guess, hardware because you had asset, physical, physical goods. Um, how, how do you go about that? And I think this will also answer maybe the question of how did you initially buy into the business? Like, you know, did you just know somebody, you know, so how does that go about? How does one have these transactions? Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember my, how I found the business, but I know a business broker mm -hmm. was a part of it. So there's business brokers out there that tend to specialize in, you know, certain markets. You know, maybe one's in dry cleaning, the other's, you know, doing certain types of manufacturing or printing. Uh, so I definitely engaged with the business broker to sell it, but I believe the uh, the company that bought us actually heard about us through one of my neighbors uh, there at the the same business park. So uh, that's how it was sold. But yeah, it, it went through a business broker. Yeah, you know, I guess maybe because I'm in the software world, I don't even think about business brokers, but that's a great point. They're Essentially, yeah, just like a real estate agent, but for your business. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So so, so, so you sold the business and, you know, I guess you had to, you, you sold it off and I suppose you had to either pay back investors or, I mean, I guess pay back yourself as an investor um, since, you know, I, I guess, you, can you talk a little bit about maybe that experience of, of, of selling a business. I mean, it sounds like you didn't love it. You know, it wasn't this, like you probably enjoyed it, but you weren't, like you said, ready to dedicate 20 years of your life. Were you relieved? I mean, you know, to, to, to sell it and maybe have a fresh start. Like, how do you feel on the other side of that? Yeah, it was a little bittersweet, right? Because it, it was my business and I put a lot of energy into it. Um, it was something that I was proud of, but at the same time, it was taxing. Um, I think anybody that's, you know, put a lot of work into their own business can relate. Um, so it did feel good to a certain degree to unload it. Um, and kind of going back to what you said before, I wasn't able to, you know, take a, a two-week trip to Turks and Caicos and vacation, but... It was sort of a wash, and and um, it, it you know at least me, at least me got me into my next chapter mm -hmm. of my life. And I think you know I appreciate you sharing that, and I think it's important to to note because there is such a bias based on what we read about. You know, unless you yourself know a ton of business owners, per, I suspect that a large number of businesses that are sold are either sold at a loss or you know just sort of. At a, as a wash, right? Meaning, or maybe the person makes a little bit, right? Because you don't really hear about that. That's not sexy. Forbes isn't going to write about, you know, kind of a small business that sold for exactly the amount of money that it's it's <laughs> worth and not some like 40 per X multiple that everyone hears about, you right. know, when Google buys a company, right? For a few billion dollars. Uh, but I think it's important to know that because A, 
realistic expectations are really important when you're going to start a business. You cannot assume that you're going to start a business, sell it in three years to Facebook and retire, right? Most likely it's not going to happen. And, you know, number one. And then number two, you know, the idea that it's things are probably going to take longer than you expect uh, in general to ramp things up and to grow the business, et cetera. Um, like you said, you know, I don't know what I don't know what your expectations were, but you know you worked on this for for ten years, and you could have probably gone on for longer. But then it's like, do you want to, right? Do you yeah. want to? Yeah, and I th- I think some people go into business. Well, I know some people go into business with an explicit exit strategy. We're going to do this, and then we're going to be purchased for you know X number of dollars. That would be hard for me. I think I've got a I've got a be all in and really want to do it and envision myself at least doing it for a long time. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm the same. I think you have to because you devote so much of yourself, right, to the business. And if you don't feel like it's yours, maybe not for the rest of your life, but the foreseeable future, it's hard to kind of live and breathe it, if you will. That being said, if someone has any tips on how to... uh, get in and just as successfully grow and exit the business without feeling like you have to live in it for the rest of your life, let me know because I would like to to learn that. And that's not to say you you don't sell it someday, but you, you just got to be all in while you're there. Absolutely. Russ, I want to kind of jump into this, you know, point of your life where you come across the idea for what will eventually become citizen path. With, um, how, how did that happen? How did it you know, how, how did you come uh, to, you know, come up with this idea or, or how did you come to launch this business? So, uh, you know, I worked for the buyer of my business for about a year. Um, I did some consulting. Um, I actually thought I, I wanted to just find something full time uh, working for somebody else for a little while and just take a break. But I really didn't find that very easy. I think by that time I had you know, kind of an eclectic background of electronics marketing and printing and people that were hiring didn't know exactly where to put me and, and you know, how I fit their role in their industry. So it was a little bit tough finding something. So finally in 2013, uh, I was talking to a a lawyer friend who was a, a friend who happened to be a lawyer and kind of brainstorming some ideas. Um, because at that point, I think, yeah, I probably was I'm starting to think about just going out and building something new. I just didn't know what it was yet. And um, he had sort of been involved with another business that gave businesses and individuals a, another option for filing patent and trade trademarks. Uh, So essentially an electronic interface for the patent and trade office and a way for people to file. And and there's a bunch of businesses out there now, um, including LegalZoom, I think, that do do it. But um, he had gotten involved with a business like that. And so we started to think along those lines and came up with immigration as another government very bureaucratic process, a lot of forms, something that had the potential to be simplified a little bit and kind of worked that idea in 2013. And uh, finally, well, let me back up. Um, We identified that we really needed to get a little bit more help. Uh, So I brought in an immigration attorney uh, that had more specialized knowledge of that area of law and uh, another partner, um, Nick, who uh, could focus on the technology side of the business. Uh, and so once we had that, we we worked on it through 2013, and then uh, were able to finally launch in early 2014. How did you? So did you, you know, quote unquote, bootstrap this? Did you kind of get any outside funding? Yeah, we decided just to to bootstrap it ourselves. Um, and essentially put in, um, you know, enough to uh, come up with that that MVP, that just basic product, and prove that our idea could work, mm-hmm. and uh, developed it from there. Did you? I'm curious for your co-founders. I mean, 
were they sort of working on this part time? You know, was it? I'm just curious about um, how you, because you guys weren't like 22 right out of college, right? I mean, I'm assuming right. you obviously already had a career. It sounds like you, were, you know, you had a family, and and I'm assuming that your co-founders maybe also had, you know, responsibilities and and you know of their own. Right. How do you kind of get people to join in on the idea and actually devote at least some time in the beginning, if not all their time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so Nick and I, Nick's the the, the partner that uh, contributed on the technology side of things, are really the ones that you know spent significant hours in terms of development of the website and and the business model and and uh, yeah, that's it. I mean, it's a great question. It's almost better for Nick. Um, I mean, I had my motivations because I believed in it and I I knew I could do it at some point. You know, don't know how long it's going to take, but if I put enough energy into it, I'm the type of person that's very determined. Um, I just won't stop until it's done. And um, I was lucky enough to have a partner, Nick, that, you know, believed enough in this project as well that he put in a lot of essentially unpaid hours at that point to to build something that we could actually earn a living from. Right. Yeah, that's, you know, I asked that because I, you know, had my own in the very beginning when I had my idea for laborless, I obviously could not, I'm not a technology person. I came at it from the legal side, but I was actually, you know, it took some time to find somebody who can similarly buy into the idea, who believed in it, who thought, and who was willing to your point, to put some blood, sweat, and tears in it before mm-hmm. the company started to generate revenue. So, you know, I, I think a lot of times there are solo founders, but I do think it's really nice to have a partner. Uh, you know, you have someone to bounce ideas off of. You have someone who you can actually just de-stress with, right? Um, so I, I think it's just a great, great point there. Yeah, I appreciate collaboration and, and being told that there's a better way to do things or just it just works better okay so you guys had the idea in 2013 you worked on it for you know a portion of that year or or a year and you finally launched in 2014 now you know in 2014 i had just graduated law school i just started working as an immigration attorney uh in in 20 in late 2013 um you know, maybe it wasn't on my radar personally, but I just feel like there was not really much of a discussion around immigration technology, you know, not even close to the level of, you know, where it's at right now. So I, I'm wondering, you know, I don't know, what was it like when you launched? Were you expecting a big splash or, or, or how did that how did that moment occur, you know, when you mm-hmm. finally went live and you had a product? What next? I think we were at a stage and we still are, the truth of it is, where the consumer still really doesn't know uh, or isn't educated on the product. In other words, a lot of people still don't know that a service like ours is out there. When we were developing it, we definitely thought, I mean, it was an organic idea for us. It took us a while until we discovered that there's a couple competitors and one in development at the time, and then more came along. But there's overwhelmingly, I think most customers aren't really familiar with it. They need to be taught about it, what it is. And so that takes some time. I mean, we're still in that phase of educating consumers that there's an option between completely doing it on your own and an attorney that they may or may not be able to afford, they may or may not need. And so we kind of fill that that giant chasm in between. Yeah, and and that and that of course is a huge chasm, and there are a lot of different ways to look at it. It's an access to justice question, it is uh, an, an efficiency uh, question, it is you know sort of bringing people into the immigration space who or into immigration who might not even have thought about it previously because to your point they maybe couldn't afford it. I'm just curious thinking about how it is now, but how did people react? Sort of how how did you get the word out there? You know, back then. I mean, there was always, of course, Facebook at the time. There was already Facebook and Google and YouTube, and you can run ads on all these platforms. How did you guys get the word out there? Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, Google, pay-per-click. Uh, there's a lot of relevant search terms for somebody that's, you know, looking to um, apply for citizenship or apply for a green card, et cetera. Uh, but social media as well. And uh, then 
Uh, I think ultimately just taking care of our customers and getting a good reputation. And obviously in an immigrant community, there's going to be a lot of sharing on who they can trust and had a good experience with. So uh, definitely taking care of our customers um, and, you know, being transparent and honest and, and uh, just being a good, um, you know, partner in that process has been an important step for gaining their trust. Can you share, I mean, so what is, what does Citizen Path do? How does it, how does it work for anyone listening who, you know, might not know? Um, it's it's kind of cliche at this point because all my competitors and everybody, the, the easiest way to communicate what we do, right, is we're like TurboTax, but for immigration. Right. And people kind of have that aha moment. But um, to get more specific, and, and you kind of touched on you were reluctant to call it a do-it-yourself service, and, and I find myself doing that same thing, but it really is a self-directed do-it-yourself service that you know, sort of educates the consumer while they're preparing it uh, to help them make the right decision. So somebody that wants to apply for an immigration benefit, um, examples would be um, applying for a green card, renewing a green card, applying for citizenship, and many others would come to our website and select the appropriate form. There's a government form for each of those requests. And Uh, They would start by answering a series of questions. Um, A lot of them are going to be the the same exact questions as the form, Um, from simple ones like name and address uh, to ones that start to get into, you know, things like employment history or immigration history. And it's it's a lot of those where there's um, sometimes nuances or... um, you know, they're, they're just asked on the official government form in a way that's not always clear, uh, can sometimes for certain people put them in in a bad spot if they answer it and they shouldn't be or if they, you know, provide inconsistent information. There's just places where uh, it's just can be troublesome um, or problematic uh, if they're not answering accurately. Uh, so during this questionnaire process, we have a lot of uh, tool tips that give more context to, um, you know, why the question's being asked maybe or, you know, where to find that information, uh, sometimes diagrams that can be helpful. Uh, and then when somebody answers in a way that could be problematic, we um, identify those issues, uh, give them immediate feedback if they're answering in a way that we know is going to be a problem. Uh, Sometimes it can be self-correcting, meaning, um, oh, they just need to go back and fix something else. Uh, Or sometimes it's, you should not be doing this on your own. You need to talk to an attorney. Um, We can't help you. You're forced to stop there. And uh, there's a link, you know, to find an attorney. Uh, So, in a way, people can sort of use it at this point just to kind of self-screen and determine if they you know, should be using an attorney instead of doing it themselves. So we let people get started on this questionnaire for free. They don't have to pay first. Um, and like I said, that way they could almost screen themselves. Um, it's not until you reach the end that you need to pay for the service in order to download that prepared government form that's just ready to print and sign, as well as some customized filing instructions. So the government instructions cover every possible scenario, sometimes with confusing language. Uh, We'll take that and sort of distill it so it's for their specific situation. If, If children aren't in the mix, then we don't have to address, you know, what to do if you have children. Uh, but if you, you are married and you need to provide certain documentation, for example, uh, we'll outline exactly what to provide. Um, so not just proof of um, citizenship, but the exact types of you know, documents you might want to include that satisfy that requirement. Um, and so these are provided as PDFs, uh, so people can provide them, print them at home. Uh, but if they need to, we could print and mail it as well. And that's, yeah, that's the gist of it. And of course, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the questions is, as an immigration lawyer, for example, I would have is obviously making sure that 
they're not filing it when they shouldn't be. But to your point, you know, there are these sort of red flags and or potential stopping points if you do find that the answer triggers, you know, and a big uh-oh, <laughs> you know, where it turns out that they can't do this themselves. They should speak to somebody to make sure that they're okay. How do you build those in? I mean, I guess you work with an immigration lawyer or lawyers to kind of make sure that the logic in the system tracks any potential issues that come up? Correct. So there's, as you know, immigration law, there's, I mean, there's just so many different scenarios and possibilities. So it, it is difficult at times, but yeah, I mean, if, if there's a way, if there's a way that somebody could have a problem with a particular answer, we try to identify those issues so that we are sort of checking them as they go. Yeah. And, and I think that's just really important uh, because again, there's a lot of talk about this type of business from the immigration com- law community. And I'm saying this as somebody who's an immigration attorney. I think there's like this idea that there's no immigration lawyer buy-in for these services, but of course there is. And in fact, they're often central to building these products out. So I just, you know, it, I think it's good to talk through that so that people can understand exactly how the, you know, that the screening, if you will, side of it works. Okay. So they go in, they fill out the form you know, they are then, you know, prompted effectively to pay if they want to be able to print out the form with instructions and they sign and uh, mail it in. If they have, I don't know if your company does this, but if they have questions, is there sort of ancillary or one on, you know, half hour type of immigration lawyer support? If they say, you know what, I get it, but I'd like to just have an extra, you know, conversation with someone before I totally feel comfortable sending that in. Is that possible? So our model is focused more on just building the software as a service. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we believe we can be, you know, 99.9% you know, accurate in terms of um, making sure we get it right for people. Uh, if they want to consult with an attorney, they're certainly welcome to. Um, and we have a referral page, but we don't, we don't do that for them. They would just have to reach out to their own attorney or find an attorney and have them review it. Yeah, of course. And and I think that brings up an interesting point, something that I, you know, we chatted about previously that I want to touch on uh, is this sort of regulatory landscape now where maybe mm-hmm. that would be possible, you know, in some states, that scenario, I think today could be sort of possible. And then there's some people who think that in the future, that will be possible where um, you would be able to both provide them with the software, you know, as a service and also be able to legally provide them with legal counsel, right? Which right now is, you know, in many ways not possible um, because you you can't sort of charge them for it uh, and pay the lawyer and split the lawyer legal fees. Um, do you, I mean, and I know this is sort of a theoretical uh, question, but would you imagine that if that was possible, would you want to build that into your business model, do you think that's a good idea? Or do you think that it should be, look, we're a SaaS uh, company, we provide the software, that's what we focus on. When you need the legal, when you need legal advice, that should not be from within the organization. Uh, we don't have a you know definite direction on that. In other words, we're still listening to our customers and see what they want. Um, but yeah, at this point, our focus is just to be as, as good as we can be in terms of the software. And that's something that we could easily add on later uh, if we think our customers really want it. Yeah. And if the legal, you know, right now, California doesn't allow for it. But of course, I guess Arizona's talking about it. Um, Utah, of course, is like the big um, sandbox. Uh, and and I know we were just chatting about this before. Florida just went the opposite direction. And, and struck down unanimously a vote mm-hmm. to allow, you know, quote unquote, non-lawyer ownership and, and fee splitting. So it is interesting to see kind of where these things are are going. I have a feeling it's going to eventually end up resembling, you know, kind of cannabis style laws where some states allow it, other states don't. You know, federally, there's no uh, there's no rule. Obviously, this isn't maybe probably not a Supreme Court matter. It's, you know, an American Bar Association you know, ethics committee type of matter and, and, and individual states. But I feel like given how prevalent just software is in our lives and medical and just broader legal, right, and, and just our day-to-day communication and everything we do, I feel like we have to move eventually in that direction where, there, you know, there's going to be buy-in from legal, but there's also going to have to be some level of ownership from technology people who can help us, like, navigate the world, the legal world, you know, from a tech angle. 
Well, to a degree, it, I mean, it's getting you know, immigration law is pretty complicated. There's so many exceptions and rules, and you know, different ways that, that you could go wrong. That you know, it requires a good immigration attorney some research a lot of the time to find the answers. So, if you've got software that has been already researched to address that scenario, it could actually be an aid to an attorney. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. They can, they, they can use that to a, a new attorney can use that as like their kind right. of check. Right. I mean, ha, because how does it work in real life? You're, you're a, a new attorney. You, if you're lucky, you're at a law firm and they have resources. You can go to your senior attorney or the partner. They'll give you a checklist, which is going to follow some kind of legal logic. And then you fill out the form and, you know, work on your case based on that checklist. This is kind of the same thing, except it's digital, right? Um, and, and there's software behind it. So yeah, that, that, that's a great point. It, it's both a consumer product and an aid to lawyers. I mean, when we when we design the software, there's cases where, you know, I'll run this by an, uh, my immigration attorney partner and he'll say, well, that's really rare, <laughs> but it's going to happen to us. You know, we've got to be prepared to address just about every scenario and if we can't, then, you know, we got to put up a, a stop sign and just say it doesn't address you or your situation. Definitely. That's which is smart, right? Because and, and of course, from an ethical perspective, you know, the, the, the person has to know that if you can't be sure of their situation, they should probably talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So where do you think, you know, I guess from your perspective, from as much as you can share, like, what is your vision for the company? You know, where where. Where would you like it to go? Kind of, you know, if you can share stuff you're working on, I guess, you know, just thinking like, what's the future for for you guys? Because I think that is sort of reflective of the future for the industry as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of going back to what I said before, I think we're still on that upward curve of people just learning uh, what this service is, what it can do for them, you know, how it can add value to their situation. Um, we're in the process of retooling what we do uh, so that we are ready for growth. Um, and what I mean by that is we initially built our service on a, kind of a, a third-party solution that allowed us to get that product out and, and do quite a bit with it. Um, but we're at a point where we want to do more uh, things that we can't do in the current environment. So we've been uh, rebuilding the entire platform uh, over the last few months. So, you know, users will see it in terms of just, you know, small features and things that make the, the user experience a little bit better. Um, but it also positions us to grow in a couple new ways um, as the, the market develops. That's awesome. And also owning the infrastructure is important, right? Because if you're building on someone else's platform in a way, something happens to them, God forbid, but if something happens to them, you know, you can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that, that's, yeah. that's really cool. That's, that's smart. Have you guys, I mean, it, you know, it sort of sounds like it's, it, it's a slow, steady kind of organic growth for you. And, and you're, you're obviously continuously taking steps um, looking forward you know, one of the things I do like to ask guests about is, I mean, you know, what challenges have you had, right? Like what, what bumps in the road have you experienced in part, because I think that's where we can all learn, you know, a lot, right. From other people's kind of mistakes or, or maybe not mistakes, but just difficulties. Yeah. I mean, none really come to mind that are like a, a great learning example, but it, the, the, the entire history, you know, is, full of tiny iterations, you know, I mean, literally every day we're making little tweaks here and there. So I think what comes to mind for me is just a constant learning uh, from our customers, listening to what they have to say. You know, we let our customers uh, give us feedback in terms of, a, you know, a survey. And, and if there's any way that we can improve on our process based on their feedback, we try to do that. Um, because, it, you know, it might help just a, a little bit for that next person. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to, you know, think of a, a great example of something where we we really ran into a block, but it's been kind of a, a slow, linear progression to where we are now. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and that's great too. I'm curious from a business perspective, did you expect it to be faster? And I'm only saying this, I'll, I'll give you context. I'm saying this because when I launched Laborless, our strategy was to go after universities because a lot of universities hire H-1B workers. And guess what? These universities typically publicly uh, uh, share their their uh, their staff e- names and emails. So we found all the immigration people who worked at all these universities and we were like, great, we've got everyone's email addresses. We're going to offer it to them for free because they're, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a no brainer. Of course, they're going to say yes. Zero bytes. And, and I was lucky if people responded, a lot of them just were courteous and said, we're not interested. I had a few people who were like, who the hell are you? You know, take, you know, stop that's, emailing me, you know? Well, that's where, yeah, my head was, is the answer is yes. Uh, you know, I, I would have wanted us to grow quicker. Um, but I think it's, it's, yeah, it's a slow march in earning trust. Um, you know, we've got a great track record with trust pilot reviews. Nothing, you know, has we've not gotten bad press or anything, but um, it just takes a long time to just earn people's trust and be a, a brand that uh, people can rely on and, and just, cl- you know, click without too much worry. Because it's a big deal, right? It's not just, you're not purchasing shoes, you're, 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 putting a lot of personal information online. Um, and then of course, uh, you know, trusting us to do the right thing with it, which by the way, we don't share or sell any data. Um, and then just the, the actual immigration process itself, is it really prepared correctly? Am I, is it going to create more problems for me? Uh, which if done incorrectly, it can. Yeah, it's really important. It's really, the, the, the trust is important. Yeah, it's understandable. We've got a really, really great question here from, from Jeff O'Brien, who's also a California-based lawyer and an immigration tech um, exec. So he says, do you think that if CIS is able to process all forms online and they're able to effectively screen eligibility, that that would be a threat to your business model? Or do you always think that you would be um, one one step ahead and and I will say this, I mean, I think most people watching or listening probably know that virtually all immigration forms, period, you know, whether it's an application for something or, or a different, you know, any other type of form, basically have to be printed and sent to, you know, USCIS in this case uh, via you know, FedEx, right, or UPS or, or what have you. Um, and that's a big challenge. We can build all the tech we want, the coolest, most brilliant, innovative, artificially intelligent technology, but you still have to send it to printer at the end of the day which is crazy. But of course, there is a hope to digitize things from the government side. So what are your thoughts on what are your thoughts on that and, and, and how that impacts? Yeah, this? it's a good question. There are, I can't remember exactly, you know, roughly six forms which consumers can file electronically on the USCIS website. Um, but there is a problem with that because um, they they can screen it, but they're not looking out for the you know the actual filer. In other words, um, if that filer is going to answer a question in a way that puts them in a bad position, the USCIS isn't going to stop them. So right now, I think the e-file option is sort of um, you know it's alluring to a lot of people. Uh, they view it as a quicker way to get their benefits which sure it saves you, you know, a couple of days in terms of mail and, and getting it submitted. Um, but really, you know, the quickest way to get a, a benefit granted is to um, to submit all of the necessary evidence and document, uh, you know, in a well-prepared manner, um, the request. Uh, so right now, I think it's sort of dangerous, the e-file system for a lot of customers that might use it. Um, and yeah, it's a threat, but um, I know, you know, myself and my competitors are looking to USCIS for the development of an API. Uh, so basically a way for us to submit the same data electronically, um, you know, sort of like the TurboTax analogy. Again, you can file, you can prepare the taxes on the TurboTax website, and then you can electronically file them. Um, so at some point, USCIS will get there. Um, it doesn't look like it's real soon, 
but but uh, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not too worried that that will take away too much business. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's interesting because uh, you know I'm living on the sort of Department of Labor side of things with with Laborless, and they built a new system a few years back called Flag. Uh, the foreign uh, labor application gateway. And as far as I know, they have no interest in, in building APIs. Now, to be fair, it's a slightly different system. You're not applying for any benefits. You're sort of uploading documentation in support of kind of, you know, different visa applications or immigration benefits. So it's not the application for the benefit itself. Um, but they've been, as far as I know, as far as I see, there's no sort of API capability there. Uh, so I... I um, I hope you're right, you know, and I and I think if USCIS right now has the opportunity to actually build something from scratch that they do take into account the fact that there are third-party companies, you know, like Citizen Path who are building, to your point, not just a good user experience, but these like checks for that will benefit the, the immigrant. And by the way, I'm sure the government doesn't want to get a whole bunch of crap applications with mistakes, right? Like it's going to cause back and forth for them. It's going to increase backlogs. They, they just want to process good information written well and put together in the right way. So I would think that it's to their benefit to make sure that what the, you know, garbage in, garbage out, they say, so then the opposite opposite must be true. If it's good quality data and information coming in, hopefully it's, you know, more streamlined process. Well, well, that's a great point because in terms of rejected applications, it runs right around 10%. So if you've got roughly 9.5 million immigration forms filed every year, call it 10, 10% are just rejected before they get in the first door. So that's a million applications right there, or applications or petitions. Um, so they're going through you know, some process to get to that point, issue the rejection. That costs a lot of money that they're not recouping. And then you get to the you know point where it is accepted and it's not complete, so they issue an RFE. They don't collect more money to handle an RFE, which is really costly, not to mention it slows things down tremendously. So to your point, Roman, to have things entered into their system more efficiently and complete would save them millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. And and I remember the whole, if you remember the whole mess a couple of years back about USCIS claiming that they're going to go bankrupt, they were going to, you know, fire 14,000 employees, or or maybe that was DHS wide, I can't remember now. Uh, But then, you know, miraculously, they they didn't. But the point is that the fear of looking at their bottom line, because they are fee funded, they are a fee funded agency. Um, to your point, you know, that this would hopefully be helpful. So yeah, that, that's an interesting point, right? I think the initial instinct is, well, if they're going to automate it, is there still a business? But then A, there's a benefit, you know, in terms of your, there's still a benefit to the end client because there's the checks and, and the sort of, you know, red flags and things. But even if the government doesn't care about that, let's just assume that they don't care. Um, there is still a benefit to them to make sure that the data and the applications they get are of high quality and, you know, they can rely on third-party companies via APIs to better ensure that the applications coming in are, are good. And by the way, I mean, the same is true for law firms. So, you know, law firm might use um, software packages like Serenade to manage their cases and prepare forms, uh, and they can pre- print the forms directly from the software, uh, but they're not able to electronically file it through that software. So mm-hmm. if an attorney, as I understand, wants to electronically file, you've basically got to take all the information from the printed form and just rekey it into the website at USCIS. That's a good point. Which, which is an opportunity for errors, right? So. Yeah, that's a great point too. Yep, yep. Yeah, and so I would think that because, you know, companies like Citizen Path and then on the on the sort of, if you want to call it B2C or the consumer, consumer immigration side, you know, and the immigration lawyer case management companies who also would like to see an API, you know, my hope is that uh, USCIS listens because that is a lot of different people from different angles, you know, basically asking for the same thing. Um, you know, as a quick plug in, plug for the American Immigration Lawyers Association, there are gonna, there's going to be an ALA Immigration uh, Tech and Innovation Summit in December 
uh, that's virtual. And uh, there's going to be a discussion with some USCIS folks, the CIO and CTO, I believe. And I'm confident this is going to come up surely as a question uh, to them. So it'll be interesting to hear what they say. Probably they hear the concerns and definitely they understand it. You know, the question is, will they act on it, right? And and if and and how how quickly and, and what will it look like? Um, so, but this is a really interesting topic, and I'm I'm excited to like follow it, right? And, and, right. and yep. see what continues to happen. Um, cool. I I wanted to well, <laughs> I just as a quick note here uh, from earlier, Roman did mention this book, Built to Sell. Uh, so just to your earlier point, uh, Russ about you know, people who come in with the mindset of having an exit strategy for a company. Um, I guess there's our, there's our blueprint. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so anyway, thank you for that question, Jeff. I, that was a really, really good topic of, of discussion. Um, so, you know, I, I guess we understand where you, you guys are at now and, and sort of what you're, what you're looking for. Um, my, I guess my, my last question to you sort of would be, what, what would you want? I mean, given that you guys have been around since you know 2013 slash 2014 is when you launched, um, you're still you're sort of trending upwards, continuing to trend upwards. Uh, what would you want people to know about Citizen Path, mm-hmm. right? Like, given you know where things are going and what the company does, like if you could sort of snap your fingers and educate people on this one thing, kind of what would that be? Uh, great question. I mean. <sighs> We we love what we do. Uh, I think anybody that you know customers would come in contact with um, really enjoys this space in terms of uh, immigration and helping people, and you know actually having genuine concern for our customers and making sure everything's perfect. Uh, so I would definitely want customers to know that uh, we care. Um, uh, I mean, I'm I'm having fun. And I uh, really like what I do. That's important. That definitely, definitely is important. I'm wondering, and thank you for, for sharing that. I, I usually like to end these uh, conversations on sort of like a, a fun note. I do have a question for you. Uh, do you know, like, what, what's your, do you know your family's immigration story? I mean, I don't know who, like, do you know who was born elsewhere or and when they came over, if, if anyone? Not well, um, but yeah, roughly... Yeah, I've got an uncle who researches that, and um, we know that we've got um, our that side of the family, of course, came from Austria around 1850. Wow. Uh, so a lot of them um, migrated to the Midwest, um, kind of the Missouri area. Uh, so I have actually been to uh, an old farmhouse that has, you know, grave markers from uh, you know, the second half of that century with uh, with our last name on it, which is a little odd to see. Um, but we don't, yeah, I don't have a lot of details about it. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I mean, you know, that that's something. I, I And I ask this because I think it's sometimes really obvious for someone who either is an immigrant or, you know, maybe their spouse or somebody in their direct immediate family is went through the process to like have the connection to it. But most of us, right, unless you, you know, your entire family comes, you know, from a native or like a first nation, you're, you're going to be from somewhere, right? And I just, I always find it interesting. Not everyone knows, to your point, not everyone looks into it. And, and um, it, many generations later, you kind of just, you don't know. So it's cool that you are, it, it's good to keep tethered, I think, to like yeah. that history. Yeah, it'd be nice to know more. Yeah. So I want to end this on a question. So as someone who helps people immigrate to the U.S., did you ever have any urge to live in any other country? Or maybe you did live in any other country. Uh, No, I haven't lived in another country. Um, I always thought that after college that I would spend some significant time in Japan. I actually um, learned Japanese in college uh, to the point where, you know, I was getting ready. Uh, It just... I, I think things developed with that first job in a way that I kind of wanted to stay and take advantage of that role. But I, you know, I sort of, I don't regret it, but you know, you kind of wonder what it would have been like if I would have had that experience. Uh, Cause I, that was my plan. How's your Japanese now? It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't use it. You don't, you don't yeah. retain it. 
Well, I, I suspect that if you went to Japan, you spent three months there. Uh, I'm sure some of it would come back. Yeah, I still have to do that, don't I? Yeah, and you still and you still have plenty of time. You never know. I mean, if uh, built to sell, if, if if all things go well and you get your yacht at the next time around, maybe you can sail the yacht to Japan and, and spend a couple of months there. Uh, not yet. Immigration's fun. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Well, Russ, thank you so much. This was really, really interesting, and appreciate you sharing your, you know, your story, your journey, and of course, talking a little bit more about Citizen Path. To your point, just educating consumers and prospective immigrants on this, on the fact that these options exist, is is you know still important. And you know, th- because of the inherent kind of nature of immigration uh, clients, right? Immigrants coming from other parts of the world, you're kind of always continuously educating people because they're coming into this space uh, potentially, you know, not from a place of, of knowledge around what's possible. So um, I think that's probably, probably part of the fun of, of continuously figuring out creative ways. I mean, you're a marketing guy, you know, to market them and, and, and to market to them and to connect with, with these communities and, and provide, you know, your services. So I wish you best of luck. And I'm excited to keep watching you guys grow. And of course, in parallel, excited to watch what happens with the industry. So thank you again for joining. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm thankful, Roman. Uh, thanks for having me and I uh, appreciate being here. It was fun. Awesome. Awesome.